chapter number five, okay? Second Corinthians five, and we are in lesson two of our series on marriage. I wanna kind of get your thoughts here. If you had to guess, what is the number one reason marriages don't last, according to statistics? What is the number one reason marriages don't last? Micah? Communication, okay. Cheating, good guess. I want to just get, I'm not going to tell you which one's right yet. Let's get a finances, good. I'm assuming disagreement about finances, right? Um, Other thoughts? Faith. Beliefs, good. It's not one we often think about. Other thoughts? Why don't marriages last? All this, well, we've got one season married person who answered. All the actual married people aren't answering. Come on now. What are, what are some other reasons? You can even pile on if you think you agree with one of the others who've answered. Reasons marriages don't last. Sin? Good. What else? Jerry's hitting them all. He, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the dart at the whole board, right? That's good. One more. One more guess. Y'all think I'm kidding. Arguments, good. Well, <clears throat> the, uh, there was a study done that these are the top three answers by the Institute of Family or something like that. I have it on my premarital counseling notes, not my Sunday school notes here. Here are the top three. Lack of commitment. Incompatibility. <clears throat> Or uh, was it you, Peace, who said affairs? Infidelity or extramarital affairs are the top three. Now, Jerry, I'm going to have to agree with you that behind all of those things really is a bigger problem. And I wasn't going to use the word sin, but that's just as good of a word, and you'll see why what you and I are going to say are basically the same thing, Jerry. I think behind every problem in marriage is selfishness. Selfishness. Think about it. Extramarital affairs, right? One of the top causes for divorce obviously is caused by selfishness. A lack of commitment. You know what the really good synonym for that is? Selfishness, right? Incompatibility. I I could have a whole lesson on what I think about that as a reason for divorce. I think it's a stupid reason for divorce. Ultimately, I think that's really tied to lack of commitment because if your commitment is only if you are compatible, you have misunderstood love and misunderstood marriage. Growing apart, people say, that is selfishness as well. This morning, what I want us to do before we really launch into the the bones and the structure of our study on marriage, I want us to really lay the foundation of the main problem we all face in our marriage. And that problem is selfishness, which we all would call sin. And this is exactly what we'll see in 2 Corinthians 5, is that sin is the main problem in any relationship. Because sin makes us focus on our own kingdom. Here's why I think you're, you're right and I'm right, Jerry. Is I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 5 and look at verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. It tells us why Jesus died for us. 
It says in that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. You know what that is? Selfishness. Quite literally, Paul is saying, Jesus died so that you and I wouldn't be selfish, right? Jesus died so that you and I wouldn't be selfish. It tells us that apart from Christ, you and I, our default orientation is living unto ourselves. And really, that's a great way to describe the bedrock of all sin. Sin is living for ourselves, right? I think some of us, we think that the main reason we need salvation is because when we die, we're going to go to heaven or hell. That's not actually the main reason you need salvation. The main reason you need salvation is because you are a creature who was destined to live for something bigger than yourself. You are destined to live for a kingdom that is higher than yourself. And yet, because of your indwelling sin, you have chosen to not live for God in his glory. You've chosen to live for yourself. Here's what sin does. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Sin takes our head and makes it stop looking upward at God and his purposes and makes us think about ourselves and look at the mirror and only consider our life and our little world. Sin is the primary motivation. Uh, It's what makes our primary motivation in life our wants, our needs, and even our feelings. Sin causes us to be very self-aware and self-important. Because of sin, we really love us and we have a great plan for our life. That's sin, right? Sin is what causes us to think that our life story, that we are the hero of our life story. But my friend, you and I have to recognize that God's word tells us something completely different. God's word tells us that you are not the most important thing on this earth. You shouldn't even be the most important thing in your own life life. No, sin takes us away from God. And I would say this, I love how Paul Tripp says it. He says that if you think about it, sin is essentially antisocial. Sin is antisocial because sin takes us away from giving life to others and caring for others and considering others and takes us away from that in some way, whether it's visible or not, and causes us to think about ourselves. So if sin makes us focused on ourselves, think about this, then that selfish focus undermines, um, oh, here you go. Sin actually directs our focus on ourselves. So if that's true, which I just proved to you, then sin in a selfish focus undermines any relationship including marriage. This is why this series is relevant to non-married people as well. Because you can't operate in a relationship of any kind when you are governed by a sinful focus on yourself. Let me, let me get you to kind of think about this. What does sin do? Sin causes us to think of people in two ways that is ultimately selfish, Okay? It causes us to view other people as obstacles or vehicles. Okay, I want, I want you to think with me about this. 
Sin is what causes us to say, this person is getting in the way of what I want. Now hold up a second, that's selfish. Sin is also what causes us to say, this person is in my life so that I can receive the benefits of being with them or having them help me get to where I want. And, and this, this leaks into so many other areas, right? People view the church this way. Right? They see their church as an obstacle to get what they want, or often people are looking for a church that is a vehicle to get what they want. But my friend, if you view church that way, you're going to be sorely disappointed in church. You're going to totally miss the point because God did not place this church here to get you what you want. That's not why this church is here. If you think it is, then you're going to be very disappointed and you're going to rub against God's purposes, right? And neither is this church standing in the way of what you want. If it's a biblical church, right? And that is a selfish and sinful focus. People view their family that way. Have you ever had a family member that you felt like just wanted to use you? They're saying you're a vehicle. A lot of people get frustrated with their family because they, that not because their family is dishonoring God or their sister is dishonoring God or their mother or their daughter is dishonoring God, but because their mother or their daughter or their sister or their brother or their dad or their son is getting in the way of what they want in the moment. I'll tell you, I'll just be really frank with you as a parent. The number one reason I have, I have to wrestle with sinful anger as a parent is because, not because my kids are necessarily doing something wrong in the moment, but because what they're doing is getting in the way of what I want to do. I want peace. I want quiet, right? I want to get in the car faster than 10 minutes, right? I want to get to a place on time. Now, that kind of serves both purposes. I don't think that's right, nor is that um, what I want. But there's a lot of reasons we get frustrated with people, and it's not because they're dishonoring God. No, it's because they're dishonoring us, right? And here's how this works in marriage, I think a lot of people in their marriage, the happiness of their marriage, if they really dig down, they're happy with their spouse when their spouse is meeting their wants, needs, and feelings. You're excited about them. You treat them with affection when they are a good vehicle to get what you want. They, you want to be happy and they're serving that purpose. You want to have these needs or wants met and so they're serving that purpose. But what a lot of, where a lot of marriages experience frustration is they see their spouse now as an obstacle. That person's personality or their habits are what are causing your disappointment, your impatience, and your irritation. Why is this so central to who we are? Because as people, would you agree, we are drawn to comfort, order, ease, predictability, pleasure, fun, personal happiness. Would you agree we're all drawn to that? Okay, I've got four people. Y'all, you gotta work with me. This is a two-way street, right? Would you agree that's what, how we like to be, that's our thing, right? We want order, pleasure, happiness, predictability. Please give me some more of that, God. I'm, I'm in that boat too, by the way, right? Those things aren't wrong, but listen, those things should not control us. What I, what I want you to recognize, and, and we kind of touched on this last week, is that Last week, we saw that the happiness paradigm for life is a very bad way to view life. 
that if you think life in its circumstances are to serve your happiness, you're gonna be really frustrated. But what did we talk about last week? Instead of life circumstances serving our happiness, what is God's plan? Life circumstances are supposed to serve what in our life? Not our happiness, but what? God's glory, close, more thinking, self-reflective. It starts with H, our holiness, our sanctification, our growth into the image of Jesus. So, so life isn't about making you happy. God never said that. And so if you think that, you're gonna be really disappointed. Life is about making you more holy. And the same thing is true with your spouse. I think most of us are like me as a parent. We get frustrated because, not because our spouse is making God angry, but the Bible's definition of righteous anger is to be angry at things that make God angry. To be frustrated at things that make God angry. And yet so many of us, our anger and our frustration is ultimately probably because our spouse isn't serving what we want at a given moment. Here's the the reality. God gave us his grace, not so that we could build our own best kingdom. No, God gave us his grace to invite us into his much, much better kingdom. And this is why I think a lot of young couples, they mistake attraction for love. They say things like this. I've always wanted a wife that could be my partner in adventure. I love how my girlfriend loves exactly what I love. Or they'll say something like this. I've always wanted a husband who wanted a big family just like I do. I'm so thankful for my boyfriend because he's so nice and he puts up with my shortcomings and he makes me feel good about myself. Now, those aren't bad characteristics by any means, but do you see and sense how selfish actually that is? How self-serving that is? And for those who aren't married in this room, um, what you'll find out really quickly is that those realities will fade away. They won't always serve your interests. They will get in the way of your interests. And so that view of happiness in a relationship is really, really shallow. Remember, and you might read 1 Corinthians 13, 5 this afternoon, and remember that the Bible, when it defines love, one of the characteristics of love is that it does not seek its own way. Love inherently is not selfish. So how do we escape this tendency to view people as obstacles or vehicles? Well, Paul tells us that the way we die to our self-interest is through the cross of Christ, that God has reconciled us away from our own kingdom into his kingdom through salvation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All things are God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.15, it shows us that the defining change between loving ourselves and living for ourselves is the cross of Christ because Christ's self-sacrifice is what produces our self-sacrifice. That Christ's cross is the answer to our self-interest. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.15. We read it earlier. Look at the first clause. It says, and that he what? He died for all. Why did he die? I'll just paraphrase the second phrase. So you can die to yourself. 
right? So that you won't live unto yourself. That is why Jesus died. He died to give you and I a model of self-sacrifice. He gave us a model of self-sacrifice. Think about Jesus on that cross. Tell me, what percentage of Jesus's motivation on the cross was self-interest? How much of a percentage of his motivation to go to the cross was his own self-interest? Zero percent. There was not an ounce of self-interest in Jesus. Otherwise, he would not have hung himself on that cross, right? The prayer of Jesus in the garden is a beautiful illustration of this. What does he say in his prayer? Not my will, but thy will be done, right? But Jesus' cross is more than just an example. Our decision, if you are a Christian, to repent and trust in the gospel was a decision to die to yourself. That's why when we baptize somebody, what do we say when we're plunging them beneath the water? Buried in the likeness of what? His death. That's not just like a metaphorical statement of, you know, immersion as baptism. No, that is saying that when you are a Christian, signified by baptism, you have died like Christ died. You are saying, and we'll, we'll talk about this next week when we return to the book of Matthew, that you are no longer king. Your kingdom no longer matters, right? But in the same way that Christ's cross allows us to die self, his resurrection gives us the power and the capability to live for his kingdom. Look at the end of verse 15. That we should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. And what's the next three words? Y'all, maybe I'm not clear. Verse 15, this is going to be an incredibly long day, okay? Um, I did not prepare any less time for a sermon on a snow day. Do you know that, right? I do not expect any less of you on a snow day, okay? This is a two-way street. We are having a conversation somewhat, okay? So let's look at the end of verse 15. He died so that they should not henceforth live unto themselves, right? Look at the end of verse 15. But unto him which died for them, and what's the next three words? And rose again, right? He rose again. Why did he rise again? So that you could be resurrected to live for his kingdom. His resurrection is what gives you the power in your own individual life to say, my life is not about myself. My life is about God and his kingdom. That's why Paul says in verse 17, very familiar verse to all of us. He says that we're a new creation, right? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is he talking about there? The new creation is demonstrated by a different kingdom allegiance. Old things are passed away. What are the old things? Living for ourselves. And all things have become new. We're now living for God himself, right? That new creation comes with a new lifestyle, living for God's kingdom. And verse number 18, that is what Paul means when he says we've been reconciled to God. We are not living in our own kingdom. No, God has picked us up and brought us into his kingdom, right? Another verse in the New Testament says he's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, okay? Now, now here's why we preach the gospel. 
Because though it is true, you have been reconciled to God. Though it is true, you are technically no longer in your kingdom. You are placed in God's kingdom. The reality is of daily life that you and I need to choose a daily reconciliation to God's kingdom and our God-given spouse. Every day represents a choice before you whose kingdom you will live for that day. That's why Paul writes, look at the end of verse number 20. He says, true or false, he says they are reconciled to God. True, right? Verse 18, I think, says they are reconciled to God. But look at verse 20 at the very end. What does he say? Be reconciled to God. What? Why is he saying that? I thought they were reconciled. Well, we are reconciled in our position, but in practicality, we are not. Because you and I both recognize sometimes we don't live for that kingdom, we might. Though we've been reconciled, here's what Paul's saying. Reconciliation is also a daily lifestyle you and I must pursue. How can this be? Remember what Paul says? He says that sin dwells in him. He says, I know that in me dwells no good thing. What is God's grace doing in your daily life as a Christian? It is freeing you from your obsession with you. Grace frees you from your obsession with you. Grace is meant to bring you to the end of yourself so that you will place your meaning, your purpose, your happiness, your inner sense of well-being, and your identity, not in your needs being met or your circumstances lined up. No, grace has said, hey, you find all of those things in Christ. Now we know that that process of dying to self doesn't happen in an instant, does it? Anyone here ever been brought close to God, perfectly close to God in an instant? Okay, just make sure. Sanctification is what this is called, this death to self that should be progressive in your life. This is a lifelong process, right? Paul writes in First in Philippians 1, 6, that, that this is the entire purpose of our life, to grow closer to Jesus Christ, to know him better, to better pursue God's values and to reject self. Reconciliation to God is this. Your daily mission is to reject bitterness and to embrace forgiveness, to reject lust and embrace contentment to reject selfishness and embrace kingdom living, to reject anger and choose long-suffering and patience, to reject knowing yourself and to pursue knowing God, to reject trying to make yourself happy and to pursue glorifying God. And those who are drawing closer to that God are that way because of an intense daily pursuit of God's kingdom that is fueled by the power of his resurrection. But here's the truth. This daily reconciliation models how we build healthy and satisfying marriages. Here's another way to say that. We use that word reconciliation for restoring a relationship when there's like an argument or frustration 
or a disagreement, right? That's how we use reconcile. And so we think that reconciliation is just for the big upsetting moments in marriage and in life. But what, here's what we need to recognize. If reconciliation to God is a lifestyle, isn't reconciliation to our spouse also a lifestyle? Yay or nay? You gotta vote on that? If we're gonna reconcile to God through our daily lives and it's a lifelong process of drawing closer to him bit by bit by bit, don't you think that the same thing is true for one of God's other children? And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week that the Bible ties together intimately our relationships here and our relationship up here. If something's messed up here, it messes up things here. And we will show that very clearly biblically next week. No, here's what we need to recognize. If we choose God's kingdom, it frees us to better serve and love our spouse. And when we better serve and love our spouse, not so that they can make us happy, not so that we can make, feel good about ourselves. Because I think all of you recognize this. The thing you should do in marriage doesn't always feel good or make you happy. It hurts. It requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires a lot of putting yourself in the back seat. But if you're pursuing God's kingdom, you know that your ultimate loyalty is not making yourself happy or fulfilled. It's chasing and serving and loving this person even in their imperfection. Now consider... Uh, this diagram that I'm going to put up on the screen here. <clears throat> I think this is a great way for us to think about our relationship with God in relationship to our relationship with our spouse. I told you to kind of start thinking this way last week. To picture your relationship with God and your spouse as a triangle. So what happens as we move up this triangle? The distance between us gets shorter, doesn't it? Do you see that? Is this rocket science? Uh, okay, all right. We're... Lower shelf is where I belong in my thinking. All right? And so as we daily are reconciling ourselves to God, we are also simultaneously gonna shorten the distance between us and our spouse. And here's what that means that your personal sins against God are a huge enemy of your marriage. You might think that it's just your sins against your spouse that really hurt your marriage. No. Now, if you're living with a Christian and you, your, your relationship with God is jacked up, it will leak over. It will leak over. Because our relationship with God doesn't just like draw us close to him and we're somehow sliding up a scale. No, our relationship with God is what allows us to better, remember, it frees us to serve and love our spouse. When we're better freed to serve and love our spouse, despite how they treat us, despite whether or not they do their end of the deal, somebody say amen to that, despite whether or not they hold up their end of the bargain, if we are doing that, then we are freed to do that even if they're not because we love God and we know that we are doing this for him ultimately, not even for them and certainly not for ourselves. But the inverse is also true. The inverse is also true. Because in the same way that your relationship with God can just slowly, slowly drift. Anyone ever been there? 
your relationship with God just slowly, slowly, slowly drifts. You know what also happens in marriage? Without intentionality, your relationship with your spouse gets further and further and further apart. And there are only two ways to stay married amidst this reality. It's either to fix it or to tolerate it. My great fear in my limited observation is a lot of marriages tolerate this. They, they're like nations who have made a peace treaty and have kind of set up invisible boundaries in their home so that they can manage each other and not hate each other. They can live, but they don't hate each other. So we don't talk a lot. Well, why? Because if we talked a lot, one of us would make the other one really mad and we'd hate each other. Friend, that's not a God-glorifying marriage. I don't know, last I checked, the Bible doesn't lead us to say, find a way to be not around people who make you mad. What does the Bible tell us? No, love people and be long-suffering, right? Reconcile, seek peace with your brother before you worship at the altar. And so what we have to be careful of in our marriage, just the same as with our relationship with God, and I just wanna warn you, that passivity in your relationship with God is a choice. It is a vote to drift from God. Passivity in your relationship with God is a vote to drift away from God. And the same thing is true in marriage. We got people in here who've been married a year, two years? Two years, right? All the way up to several years, right? And we've got the all, and Gladys too with, with Dave. I mean, we've got the whole spectrum in here. Just want to say, a vote to not work on your marriage is a vote to let your marriage untangle. It is a vote. You can't, have, you can't abstain from that vote. You're either voting for your marriage or against your marriage. Let me explain what I mean by that and how that is possible in the daily life of marriage. Listen so closely, spouses. If you are married as a sinner to a sinner, it is dangerous to coast as a couple. So dangerous. And I've experienced this in our own marriage. I'll just be honest with you. I've experienced this. Why? Because sin doesn't take a break, does it? Each day there will be acts of thoughtlessness, self-interest, anger, arrogance, self-righteousness, bitterness, disloyalty. And as those compound, listen so closely, if you let those little tiny things compound, they will make a big, hairy, gross scab in your marriage that takes a lot of work to chip away and bring healing. And so what you and I have to recognize is that we have to give daily attention to our spouse. It's like my lawn this year, my soul. We went on a, on a longer trip away in the summer. Um, I don't even remember the reason, but we were gone for like a week and a half. My lawn, man. It was doing so good. It was doing so good. And I, I, I didn't tend it, and it took the whole season to not even get it back to where it was in May. Ah, it's such a tragedy. And the same thing is true in marriage. 
These little things happen. Men, you quit investing in the friendship intimacy of your marriage. It's most often men who quit investing in that. You fight for your own way rather than for unity in moments of disagreement. You complain about the other person's foibles and weaknesses. You fail to seize opportunities to encourage and compliment. You quit searching for little ways to express love. You begin keeping a little record of wrongs. You allow yourself to be irritated by what you once thought was cute. You quit making sure, men, that every day or women is punctuated with a little bit of tenderness rather than bristling. You choose not to resolve a disagreement before you go to bed. You quit expressing appreciation and respect. You allow your physical eyes and the eye of your heart to wander. You swallow little hurts that you used to discuss. You begin to turn requests into demands. You quit taking care of yourself. You become willing to live with more silence and distance than you would have when you were dating. You quit working in little moments to make your marriage better, and instead you succumb to what is. And that's why I said earlier that the greatest cause of every marital issue and divorce is selfishness. Because everything I just described is a choice to live for your kingdom and not for God's kingdom. That's why a joy-filled marriage requires a commitment to reconcile with God and with each other. How many of you have noticed the new restaurant that was built off of uh, kind of camp in between campus and Kansas there by Target? How many of you have known that restaurant? You know what I'm talking about? All right, y'all are like acting. I know half of you don't live in Garden City, but most of you have no excuse, right? Um, it's called Walk-Ons. We, we decided to try it last night. Highly recommend, by the way. It's good. I remember when they were working on the exterior, of course, many of you know I live like right by it, right? I'm like, I could almost throw a rock at it. If I had like a quarterback arm, I probably could throw a rock at it. And so I, every, every day I would see it. I mean, from the moment they started dirt work, to when the dirt work seemed to sit there for six months and nothing was happening. Then they started dirt work again. And then they rebuilt the sidewalk there on campus like 20 times. Not sure exactly what was going on there. You do wonder where your tax dollars are going and all that. But, you know, you notice all of that stuff. And I remember when they put up the building, the exterior specifically, it's a brick building, which if you know, brick buildings can be a little higher cost, but they have a, they have a certain niceness to them. I love the look of a good brick building. It seemed like it took forever to do the bricks, I mean forever, um, that made up the exterior of that restaurant. And though it took forever to finish, I think you and I all recognize that those bricks didn't come up in big, you know, rushes of laying bricks. No, though it seemed like for me, no progress was happening. Every day I drove by, that was somewhat decent weather. There was some guy on some side of the building, maybe I couldn't see it, that was laying one stinking brick at a time. And when you lay one brick at a time in a, a pretty large square footage restaurant, it doesn't really look like a whole lot at first, does it? But one brick, 
One brick, one brick, one brick. You know how marriages are built? And this is not a mystery to many of you. And you know how marriages that are wounded are built again? They aren't built in four-week counseling sprees. Now, those are helpful sometimes, but they're always built by brick, by brick, by brick of reconciliation. A brick to choose God over self. A brick to choose your spouse over yourself. One brick at a time, daily habits that enforce that you are living for God and for each other. And the product of laying those daily bricks of marriage does not become obvious very quickly. It does not become obvious. It shows up over months and years, maybe decades, of work. But how many of you recognize that most often, the buildings that take a long time to build, brick by brick by brick, are much sturdier than the ones that shoot up overnight. And it's the same thing for our marriage. On the back of your handout, I have given you, I borrowed these from Paul Tripp who wrote a book called Marriage, six gospel commitments that we will take more than six weeks to expound on. That if you will focus on these six habits, they will provide the bricks that you need to lay to reconcile not just to your spouse, but to God. Let's not forget, you won't stand before your spouse on the day of judgment. You will stand before God and he will judge you for your relationship with him and your relationship for your spouse, right? Here are the six habits. We will give ourselves to a lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. We will make growth and, oh no, change our agenda. We will work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. We will commit to building a relationship of love. We will deal with our differences with appreciation and grace. We will work to protect our marriage. This week, what I want you to do with your spouse is to follow these discussion questions. To answer this, which characterizes your selfishness more often? The obstacle mindset or the vehicle mindset? What's the obstacle mindset? This person's getting in the way of me. I don't like that. Or the vehicle mindset. This person should serve me. I want to use them to make me happy. To discuss whether or not you agree that a proper pursuit of God is what builds a healthy marriage. And then I want you more specifically to discuss, I think I gave you three questions, which habit you think you are weakest at in your marriage. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for marriage. Thank you, God, for the gospel that draws us away from our own kingdom and places us in your kingdom. I pray, God, even today, we would choose to be reconciled to you in one little way, to lay one brick. And God, as we lay that brick, Lord, let us lay a brick in our relationships as well, where we are not about ourselves, but about others and about your kingdom and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty.